0: Welcome to the Nuances podcast, where we expand our understanding of what it means to be part of the Asian diaspora. With every guest, we explore our often multi-hyphenated identities, our complicated relationships with our cultures and how they affect everything from our career choices to our views on anti-racism, disability justice, religion, feminism, LGBTQ plus rights, and more. I'm your host, Lazoo, a new American who grew up in the only place a dota bird ever lived, Mauritius. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share some great news that that I just got yesterday. The Nuances podcast has been nominated for a Golden Crane Award that is put together by the Asian American Podcasters Association. I submitted the podcast back in May and I'm excited that we are nominated. We will find out on August 30th if we want anything, but the award is completely judged by their panel, so there's no voting or anything, which is awesome because I put in a lot of hours into this podcast in case you didn't notice and it's nice to be recognized. You know, it's just nice. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. As I said in my episode last week, I do not practice any religion, but I do believe that we should all have the religious freedom to practice whatever religion we want and be free of oppression or stigmatization. Today we are going to talk a little bit about Sikhism. S-I-K-H-I-S-M. So trigger warning, we will talk a little bit about 9-11, how that whole event affected the Sikh American community and overnight made them targets of hate crimes. Although this episode focuses on the Sikh American community, the Sikh community in general does face oppression in India and other places as well. There is more information on the Saldef website and the links to that will be in the show notes at nuancespot.com. A couple of definitions before we start. The TSA, for those of you who are not in the U.S. or have not been to a U.S. Airport is the Transport Security Administration. It's an agency of the United States Department of Homeland Security that was created as a response to 9/11. A gurdwara is a place of worship for Sikhs. And yes, by the way, six, Sikhs S I K H S is pronounced six, not Sikhs. Our guest today is Kiran Korgill. gill Ms. Gill is the executive director at CELDEF, the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund, where she oversees and executes programs related to policy, research, education, civic engagement, and youth leadership in the Sikh American community. Prior to her executive role, she volunteered at CELDEF to create and conduct Sikh awareness training around the country for schools, law enforcement, and state and local governments. She worked with the New Jersey Attorney General's Office to develop statewide curricula and helped establish the Sick Lead New Jersey Program, which encourages civic engagement among sick students. Additionally, Ms. Gill ran her own company, Pars Environmental Incorporated, from 2003 to 2017. Ms. Gill served as a board member of the One Project, an interfaith and community coalition organized to address social needs through education and volunteerism. She's also the president and founding member of Inspiring South Asian American Women. Her leadership and business acumen have won her numerous accolades, which you will find in the full bio in the show notes. Here's our conversation with Kiran. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me here. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your journey as an Asian American woman. Where'd you grow up? What was that like? And what has it been like being a Sikh American?
1: So I was born in the nation's capital. So we were in Washington, D.C. My parents lived in Maryland at the time. Spent several years there, and because of my dad's job, we moved around quite a bit. We moved from the D.C. area to Toronto, Canada for a couple of years, then down to Tampa, Florida, and then to New Jersey. And then I was back to D.C., and now I'm actually out in L.A. for this job. So really, oh wow, a lot of traveling. I think it's really interesting, the experience of being an Asian American, especially in different places. I distinctly remember the move from both Toronto to Florida and then Florida to New Jersey, the school that I was in in Florida, I think I was one of two minorities in the entire school, much less South Asian, much less sick. And I think there's always a sense of having to feel like you have to explain who you are, especially for, for Asian Americans, South Asian Americans, and even more so sick Americans of being a minority of a minority. Sikhism has very distinct articles of faith. A lot of times men look different and have those distinct articles of faith, although they can be worn by women, such as a turban. The turban and the beard is quite distinct. But even As a woman, you know, just explaining the long hair, the gara, which is a metal bracelet, which again is another religious article of faith. Those are things early on you try to almost have like an elevator pitch for who you are, which is really interesting. (laughs) Who you are, your cultural and religious background, because it does come up. And sometimes that can be an extra burden that we have to bear because we're absent in many ways from the media and public consciousness. And I think that does make it hard. When I moved from uh, Florida to New Jersey, New Jersey does have a growing Asian and South Asian population. So I was one of several South Asians and Asians in the school that I was in. But still, you still have that having to explain yourself. It is less in that phase of middle school, high school, trying to figure out Who you are on so many levels, especially in high school when I was surrounded by other South Asians, both Sikh and from other religious groups and parts of India, trying to figure out, you know, what that meant, how that figured into our identity and how we wanted to lean in. Some people really leaned in and some people chose to not lean into that part of their identity. And I think it's just an interesting choice that we make or sometimes we feel we have to make as we grow up and try to develop into who we are and define our values.
0: Yeah. I'm originally from Toronto as well. I'm curious what your experience was like in Toronto. Was it different?
1: Toronto, we were only there for about two years. We lived in Mississauga at the time. Since there is a larger Punjabian Sikh population, I saw a lot more influences of Sikhism and certain values that the faith subscribes to at least where the spaces we were in. In New Jersey, at least the area I was in, there was much more diversity in terms of the mix of South Asians. So I think that was also a learning for me and that was neat to learn about the other cultures and faiths that are practiced in the Indian diaspora.
0: Yeah, a lot of people don't know much about Sikhism. So for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit about your faith and maybe its core beliefs?
1: Sure, and I love how you preface that, how a lot of people don't know a lot about Sikhism. Saldiff did a study in 2012 in conjunction with Stanford University called Turbid It was to see what the the knowledge was in the broader public about Sikhs, if people really understood the faith or understood the articles of faith in Sikhism. And I think it was 70% of individuals couldn't define a Sikh or identify articles of faith. So there is definitely a lot of work to be done there. Sikhism is a fairly newer faith. It's a little over 500 years old. It was founded in the Punjab area of what is now between present-day India and present-day Pakistan, so in northern India. It was founded by a man named Grunanik, and he really created a philosophy based on a couple of key values. One is this idea of oneness and connectivity. So believing that we're all part of the same essence, we're all one, around selfless service, the seva. And really looking at, I'll say equality, but also looking at the social structures at the time, one of the things that he really pushed back upon, which unfortunately still continues today to a certain extent, is the caste system in India. So really coming out with this philosophy of uh, being one, that everybody has equal access to spiritual enlightenment and everybody has value and worth and is able to go on the spiritual journey. And that really pushed against some of the norms at the time or challenged some of the norms at the time. He also believed in gender equality. And so a lot of really progressive values that we see people talking about today that were discussed 500 years ago. He was followed by nine other gurus who subscribe to the same philosophy, and we believe are spiritual teachers who are enlightened. So we don't believe they're God, but we do believe they're humans who have reached spiritual enlightenment. And the 10th guru formalized this philosophy into a religion on one of the holiest days, Visakhi. So on Visakhi, there's a festival in that area of Punjab, and he brought people together and really formalized the faith and asked his followers to come forward and to sacrifice themselves for the faith and not only subscribe to following the values, but also wearing articles of faith so we're easily identifiable. It's really a way of saying we're committed to these particular values of Sikhism, things like standing up against oppression, things such as selfless service, these values that The Guru Nanak, the other gurus, had been teaching for several years prior to the 10th guru really formalizing this. And so the five articles of faith that followers that were baptized at the time were asked to keep, one is uncut hair, and that symbolizes spirituality. I mentioned the uncut hair, but that is often under a turban, which is probably the most visible articles of faith. And that, at the time of the Gurus, that was a symbol for royalty. So again, it's this idea of really emphasizing everyone's worth. The second is Ganga, which is a small comb, and it's kept a lot of times in the hair, and that symbolizes cleanliness and discipline. The third is Gara. It's a steel bracelet worn on the dominant hand, and it's a reminder to do good deeds, to do what's right. It's also a symbol of the universal or unending nature of God, so we in that circle shape. The fourth is a kirpan, which is a small sword, and it's a reminder to stand up against oppression. And at that time of the 10th guru, there was a lot of both religious oppression, cultural oppression from rulers in that area. So that was something that was particularly meaningful. And then the fifth was kashara or kacha, which is undershorts and it symbols readiness and discipline. So those are the most visible part of Sikhism. But behind that is really this concept of oneness and spirituality, remembering God at all times and remembering that connection we have between one another. The one last thing I'll just add about Sikhism is that a lot of times you can tell Sikhs because of their middle or last name. On that, Vasaki Guru Gobind Singh gave the name Singh to all Sikh men and Kaur to all Sikh women. Singh means lion and Kaur means princess. And it was a way to, again, memorialize this idea of equality. And it was a push against the caste system because a lot of times in South Asian culture, you can tell by somebody's last name what caste they are. So by saying, regardless of what your lineage is, you are a lion or you're a princess, it really reinforces this idea that we're all worthy and we're all equal rather than looking at last names that people are ascribing some sort of value to. After the last guru of the six, had the Vaisakhi event and formed the Khalsa, which is the the body of baptized Sikhs. He also put all the teachings in a book called the Guru Granth Sahib. So if you go to a Sikh Gurdwara, typically for a service, you'll see readings from the Guru Granth Sahib.
0: I'm glad you brought up the name because one of my friends told me about that. And I thought that was really cool that women don't necessarily take their husband's name. They have their own name. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. So you're also involved in a lot of interfaith community organizing. One of the things I find fascinating is how all the religions, if you look at the core teachings, a lot of it is very similar. So what does Sikhism teach that you found is very similar across other religions?
1: I think at the essence, those enlightened teachers, or they use different names and different faiths, but I do believe everyone is getting to this idea of oneness and connectivity. I know Christians talk about fellowship and a lot of the Abrahamic faiths, they talk about brothers and sisters. Hindu faith talks about oneness as well to a certain extent. That is something that a lot of the faiths have in common. I think the way that we express that outwardly and go on our journeys is a bit different. But I think that is something that I've seen, particularly in the interfaith work. And those that are really working in community, really practicing their faith, they really believe in that connection and service. And I see that. I think that's a beautiful thing. And that gives me hope for the interfaith work that we're doing, faiths connecting across different issues to really make a difference in broader issues that are affecting our lives.
0: Yeah. One of my goals for this podcast this season is to help reclaim what it means to be American, what it means to be patriotic, what are American values as something that isn't monopolized by white conservatives, but shared among all American people, especially including people of color, because we're often left out of this conversation. So what does patriotism look like to you?
1: For me, patriotism really looks like civic engagement. It looks like the advocacy work that I know a lot of us are doing or involved in. It's getting involved in the system and understanding that there's flaws in the way that things were done, being realistic and being truthful about the journey of America, but working to make it better. And I think I've seen that across communities. I've certainly seen it, especially, uh, I think it's sort of this energy in the last couple of years from the AAPI community, partially because of negative experiences that have been happening, but really communities coalescing around this idea that if we work together, we can make substantive change and really hold America to its promise. And I'll put promise in quotes because I know who you ask (laughs) who will depend on whether they believe this is a promise, but I believe it's a promise of working towards a truly inclusive democracy. So many of our families Came here believing in the American dream. My parents came here as professionals in the 60s and 70s. And especially in the last couple of years, the Trump administration, sort of the xenophobia and the anti immigrant rhetoric. I would see the pain on their faces because there's a question of, is this American dream real and will it be able to manifest for future generations? And I think our work, especially those that are here and that are familiar with the system and that can vote and can exercise our rights, that we have to do that to the fullest. And I think
0: to me, that's true patriotism. That's a wonderful answer. (laughs) Is there a memory that stands out to you as a moment where you felt proud to be American.
1: I think for me, when Obama was elected, seeing somebody of color, seeing somebody that had a different path. I mean, he even lived in Southeast Asia. And actually, my parents grew up in Malaysia and Singapore. So that was an interesting connection to see. That for me and for many others was a moment where we started seeing possibilities actually materialize to say, okay, this is something that we can do. These are spaces we can be in. Sometimes it's hard to enter conversations because the language isn't there. And I'll see if I can elaborate on that a little bit more. A lot of times, especially as a minority, you'll have a unique experience, but it's hard sometimes to enter the conversation if it's guided by questions, comments, philosophies that in no way pertain to your real life experience. It's hard to find that entry point. And I think. Seeing him get elected and the types of conversations that were happening in this country allowed many of us to feel like there was more of an entry point and that we did have important contributions to make in regards to the policy and the direction of this country.
0: Yeah, definitely opened up a lot more conversation around race. And even while he was campaigning, that was different from previous campaigns, for sure.
1: Yeah, things that experienced. like, oh, hey, I've experienced that, too. I didn't know it was OK to talk about that or be public or... Now, because it was on the national stage, like discussing it among friend groups or I think it did really shine a light on a lot of things that were happening in this country
0: continue to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Continuing in that theme, the phrase American values evokes very different things for different people. What does it mean to you? What would you like American values to stand for? So when I
1: think of American values, I think of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's the first thing that comes to mind. But all of those things, does it really apply to everyone in this country? Is everyone allowed to experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the same way? And really, for me, American values are, again, working towards ensuring that the American dream is accessible to everyone. And I think that's where we have some work to do. Definitely.
0: (laughs) Now, you have been in numerous positions of power. If you are comfortable sharing, what has been your experience as a woman of color in those positions of power, both in business and in social justice spaces? Do you feel like you have to approach things differently because you're a woman? Even in sick American spaces, do you feel like you have to approach things differently from the men? What has that been like? Yes.
1: (laughs) I come to this work from running my own company for 15 years. I was in highly male-dominated spaces. Sometimes it's so pervasive in our culture that things that you see in the workplace, in client meetings, at least in the engineering consulting field, I think there is a lot of catering to men in the way that the work structure is set up and the expectations in the spaces where you network, all of those things. So I had 15 years of, okay, this is the work expectation, devote 110% of your time to work all the time, be available to go golfing and like those types of things. I remember client dinners with the big steak dinner and beer, nothing against any of those things. They're all great. In their own way. But when I think of cultural shifts in work environment, in what's acceptable, and the way that we talk in the workplace, and the way that we structure our work, it is interesting to see ways that it can be structured differently. And in both of those spaces, I think I did bring in a more womanly touch in terms of my approach to collaboration, my approach to flexibility in the workplace, ensuring the best ideas of the day win and ensuring that everyone is given equal time to share regardless of gender background or seniority. That's one aspect. The second aspect is in community. And I think sometimes we don't talk about this because it's tough. It doesn't make us look great, but I'll say South Asian culture. I don't want to put it on all Asian culture, but it can be sometimes patriarchal, even though Sikhism is very much a religion that speaks about equality. Sometimes being a young woman, trying to ensure that my voice is heard can be challenging in certain spaces. But I will also say that I have received a lot of support by men in the community as well that want to see young women in leadership positions, and I don't know if I should still put young by my name, but women in leadership positions, that's also been really nice to see. And I'll say also in my work I also had some men that were champions for women's leadership, and that's what we need.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of patriarchy in many of the Asian cultures, and it's a theme that comes up a lot with our guests. Preserving our culture, but also not preserving the bad parts.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe
0: we, I mean, we should agree which parts
1: we're preserving.
0: <laughs> totally agree. So what advice do you have for other Asian American women who aspire to be a leader in their community like you and who are trying to navigate those male-dominant, and often white dominated spaces.
1: Finding a good support system is always helpful. There's no sort of magic formula to navigating those spaces. I think being confident in what you have to say, showing up with facts depending on the spaces with clear policy goals, clear objectives as to what you want to accomplish, how you can work together, collaborate, that's helpful. What we have to understand is that this work will be tough. There can be cultural barriers to women's leadership in certain spaces, but what we're doing is we're paving the way for the women that come behind us. So the work is important. Setting those boundaries, setting the norms and changing the norms is incredibly important. And that's the work we're asking women leaders to do. I think find some wonderful support where you can. Yeah and believe in yourself there's a lot of people that are unfortunately gonna try to tear you down but if you keep showing up and you are on point at some point they're going to take notice and I remember that with my company it was initially hard to network and to get things going but I kept showing up and showing that I was serious and people took notice when we started growing when we became a national company when we increased employees and the proof is in the results
0: yeah for sure Now, going back to SALDEF, SALDEF started their law enforcement partnership in 1999. What was the Sikh American experience in those days and why was there a need for SALDEF? What were the issues you were trying to address at the time?
1: The issue is lack of awareness of who Sikhs are and particularly our articles of faith. It's important because people a lot of times do rely on law enforcement in different situations. And one incident in particular is what kicked off our law enforcement training program There was a sick individual in Texas who called law enforcement after there was a break-in at his home. And law enforcement came, searched his home, and found a kirpan, which is a religious article of faith, and they arrested him. Obviously, this is the opposite of what you would hope for if you're calling on the police in this traumatic situation where your house is broken into. And there just wasn't awareness. And so Saldov got involved and we explained the religious articles of faith and what they meant. The individual was released, but it was clear that there was a huge gap in knowledge of our community. And it was really necessary to share and for law enforcement to understand how to engage with the community overall. That's our goal of the training. And we continue to do that throughout the country.
0: So soon after that program launched in 99, September 11 happened, triggered a lot of Islamophobia, xenophobia against South Asians in general, including the Sikh American community. How drastic a change was this for your community?
1: It was huge. Like overnight, people who really didn't know who Sikhs are or think about the association of Sikhs and where they come from. There was this incorrect association with terrorism because you saw the pictures of Osama bin Laden being shown over and over on TV. TV with a long beard and a turban, which does look similar to the Articles of Faith. And because there just wasn't broad awareness, people would see images of men in particular with turbans and beards, and the association was terrorists. So you saw extraordinary amount of hate crimes and hate incidents that were getting reported in the days and weeks following 9-11. And we continue to see these hate crimes rampant against our community. But for organizations like Saldev, we went into emergency response mode, trying to help and support our community across the country so offering legal services, victim support services, really trying to help navigate people through these really horrific experiences. We actually just came out with mental health resources as well. That's also a key part of healing and providing community support. Going from relative anonymity to the next day being labeled a terrorist had people that were just traveling for work. There was one person, sharing Singh, who was traveling on the train and he was arrested. And there was a newspaper article that indicated that they had caught one of the terrorist that was circulated, I think, for weeks, even after that was showed to be incorrect. He was actually taken down the police station and released. It was just a really horrific time for the community. And I think there was a certain assumption you had about the rights you have as an American and the belonging that you have in this country. That's just such dramatic change where it really, really was a huge shock to the community.
0: Yeah, I imagine that would change your relationship to America. Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually in New
1: York during the time of 9-11. I, I live pretty close to the World Trade Center. And I remember seeing people come up Broadway covered in ashes. We saw people jump from the towers. We, we saw all of it. It was horrific. But I also grew up in the 80s and 90s. And I saw a pre-9-11 world. And I think, you know, for a lot of us that are like of my age group, we question what happened with 9-11. And we question whether we will truly be accepted as Americans. And that was a feeling that a lot of uh, folks had. People were flying an American flag, really trying to show that we are American, which is not something we should have to do, but that was a feeling that there was a need. I feel like younger, sick Americans that grew up in the wake of 9-11 and after 9-11, really seeing these hate crimes up close, not having context of a pre-9-11 world, there is much more of a feeling of, is it possible for us to belong? How does that look? In some ways, it's sad that they had to experience hate incidents, hate crime, bullying in schools, all of those things. But I think it's also spurred a new generation of advocacy and activism in our community of younger people really wanting to get engaged because they've seen the repercussions of lack of engagement or lack of coordinated engagement in previous generations.
0: Yeah, so would you say that before 9-11 you felt like you did belong to America?
1: I don't know that I felt that I belonged, but I didn't feel like I was going to walk into a room and be attacked. Or I didn't feel that people looked at me and my family as terrorists. Yeah that's a stark difference, right? Before I was like, I don't know if people understand the full me or understand my background or my religion, or that there would even be an expectation that they would, because there's just, there's just, again, such a lack of not only understanding, but visibility in media and such a erasure in our history, but walking into spaces and feeling, yeah, that, that level of hostility, constant hostility, I think that was new.
0: Yeah. So you've run these training programs and you've trained over 100,000 law enforcement officers and agents at local and federal agencies, including FBI and the TSA. As an organization, what have you guys learned at Salda through those trainings? Maybe what have you learned about how law enforcement feels and interacts with your community?
1: I think it really does make a difference. You gave the example of law enforcement and TSA as well. I'll speak to TSA for a minute because that also relates to 9-11, because not only were we having issues of hate crimes and targeting of the community, we were also having issues of being surveilled by the government. And TSA screenings were a nightmare for many sick Americans. And we worked extensively with TSA to train them, for them to understand sick articles of faith, appropriate screening procedures, how to respect and treat community members with dignity as they go through this security screening process. And I think if you ask any sick American about what that looked like in the months after 9-11 to what it looks like now, there is a stark difference. And that difference is market improvement. In law enforcement, I don't think it's as stark because not every community member has the same experience with law enforcement. But for the areas that we are training in, we aren't hearing cases like what I mentioned, where an individual calls law enforcement and then is handcuffed for articles of faith or for who they are or for things that should be general knowledge about Sikhism. So I think that's really good to see. In 2019, we'd actually worked with the Attorney General's Office in the state of New Jersey. So Gerbier Greywall was a former AG and he himself is a Sikh. And we developed statewide training for all law enforcement in New Jersey. And I think that was really wonderful. And I remember after we had developed that training, presenting to a huge group of law enforcement officers and the feedback that we got was so positive about what they learned and how they felt that it would be useful. And interestingly enough, we also do surveys after we do the training about what people learn, and particularly in the law enforcement setting, but also across other agencies, So many of the comments shared are those of appreciation and really saying that without the training, they would have no idea who sicks are. So it speaks to this lack of awareness. And there's only certain ways that you can either, you know, somebody who's sick or if you happen to learn something in school, a lot of schools don't teach or share anything about religions or not extensively So this is something that I think is really valuable and helps them do better community engagement.
0: That's awesome to hear that the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. How long is the training?
1: We customize it. Usually it's about an hour and a half to two hours. It can be an hour. We've done for the attorney general's training, I think it was like three hours. We made that more extensive. So it can be really customized depending on what the agency is looking for. And in addition to sharing information about Sikhism, about our articles of faith, about community engagement, really try to go through specific scenarios so they understand what that engagement should look like, the do's and the don'ts. It looks a certain way for FBI, it looks like a
0: certain way for TSA,
1: doing work with the agency, so it is truly relevant to what they're seeing day to day.
0: Yeah, that's great. You've also done these in schools across the country. How is teaching kids different from teaching adults in your experience? Was one easier than the other?
1: I like both. I like teaching in schools. I think the questions we get from the kids are always really <laughs> interesting and, and cute. But yeah, I mean, the questions we get from law enforcement and from the agencies in addition to Sikhism is really about how do we like interact and specifically around engagement with articles of faith and screening certain protocols. With kids, it's more just awareness. They may have a kid in their class that wears a turban or a patka and they want to know what that means. So the focus is giving them that overview. Instead of making that sick student in the class feel like they have to answer every question known to man about sickism, that there's some basis so their peers and other students are able to understand it. A lot of times when that understanding is missing, that can cause issues. And once that's there, I think that does help eliminate teasing or in more extreme cases, bullying.
0: Yeah. So have you had difficult conversations or maybe where things were escalating have you learned about some ways to deal with situations where maybe the person you're trying to educate isn't receptive
1: yeah we have a different engagement techniques one thing that we always try to do is we try to have trainers from that area or have knowledge of that local area so it's as relevant as possible and so they have connections beyond just the training so if they have questions or comments We have had some police departments that have not been super receptive explain to them what our reality is like and why this training is necessary. We're not trying to give them an extra thing that they have to learn, (laughs) like extra work on their plate, but why it's necessary from their perspective too. So I think that helps. But yeah, we see different levels of engagement throughout the country, but I would say as of now, it's overwhelmingly positive. It'll be interesting to see as we continue our engagement. We know there's been increase in xenophobia and our country is more divided on certain issues. But I think at this point, we've been fairly lucky around that.
0: So when you have cases where, you know, departments or schools or school districts are not responsive, they're not engaging or they're not connecting. And I'm sure there's days where it's like, man, that was a tough one. (laughs) How do you manage days like this? What are you doing to take care of your own mental health?
1: Yeah. For me, like just stepping away and looking at the bigger picture, this work in the advocacy space, maybe as opposed to other spaces, I can certainly speak to consulting. It takes a lot of time. Progress sometimes can feel slow. So I think it's really stepping away and looking at the
0: bigger picture.
1: That's a good point.
0: Stepping back and keeping the bigger picture in focus Many Asian cultures historically have not been equipped to access mental health care, and there's still a lot of stigma around it. I was wondering if that's also the case in the Sikh community.
1: Yeah, we have definitely seen that in the Sikh community, especially as newer immigrants. You know, there's a focus on achievements and not really being fully open about struggles. And that can be tough because there do need to be spaces where you can talk about how we're feeling, where we can share struggles and get support. And we know that in the mental health space, and we saw this after a lot of the tragedies that we've experienced in the Sikh community, there was the mass shooting at the FedEx facility in 2021, which eight individuals passed, four sick Americans. And the Oak Creek shooting in 2012, where seven people passed. We really saw in those moments, like there weren't culturally competent mental health resources or enough providers that could understand a cultural context. And also in some cases where needed speak in language, in our case, a lot of Sikh Americans speak Punjabi. Mm-hmm. So there is this need and this gap in the community and SELDEF is trying to fill that. We have worked on producing culturally competent mental health resources and we are working on having those conversations in community and trying to destigmatize it, but
0: it it's a process. <laughs> yeah, it's a process. Thank you. That's well said. It's a process. It's an ongoing <laughs> process. For sure. Yeah. One of the interesting things I read about Sikhism is its focus on life, like the present life and not the afterlife, which is what many other religions focus on. They said that when somebody dies, the community gathers in worship, but it's a celebration rather than a mourning, And that is completely the opposite of what I grew up with. I'm wondering if you want to elaborate on that philosophy.
1: Sure. One of the interesting things about Sikh philosophy is that you can really experience spiritual enlightenment in this lifetime and live in bliss. Or in Abrahamic faith, there's this idea of heaven or hell. We believe you can experience that heaven, that bliss, that enlightenment here in this lifetime. Right. And I think it's for that reason that when somebody passes, it's just their body that is no longer living, but their soul and their essence is still there. That's what we acknowledge. So if you go to a sick funeral, there will be hymns sung. There'll be community congregating. A lot of times, full congregations will be there, And it's an acknowledgement of the passing, but it's not mourning in the same way
0: because there's that continuity. Do you feel that this approach makes the grief process easier?
1: I don't know if grieving is ever easy, but I think it gives the community a different perspective. I think when we've seen tragedy and we've experienced grief in the community, for those that are here, for survivors, for community members... There's really a sense that we want to ensure that whatever the circumstances and the two that I gave you earlier, the example mm-hmm. of Oak Creek, Wisconsin, the mass shooting there, that we really want to work to ensure that nobody else and no other communities have to experience that type of grief. So a lot of that grief, frustration, sorrow, and in some cases, even anger, depending on the person, that's not something that we subscribe to on a spiritual level, but everybody's human, right? Yeah. That, that turns into how can we advocate? How, we, how can we ensure these things don't happen again? Mm-hmm. And how can we use our time and energy to really work with the broader community, be in these spaces and promote progress around a lot of these issues, especially around issues of hate that our community has experienced?
0: Yeah. What are some changes you would like to see when it comes to access to mental health in America?
1: I think there just needs to be more discussion about mental health as the starter. There's a lot of issues that are mental health related that we don't make the connection and we don't have discussions around. I would like to see more mental health support. I'd like to see more culturally competent mental health resources and more access. There really needs to be more infrastructure built around mental health because it touches every aspect of our lives. In so many parts of the country, social services are being cut in favor of supposed community safety initiatives. But mental health and wellness, that is core to issues of safety and security as well. Yeah, Ensuring that we have communities where people feel like they're supported, where people feel like they're included, where if there's issues that people are experiencing, there's places to go and get help. Those are all really critical aspects of community building and happier communities. If you look at some of those international studies and where the U.S. falls on some of those, we're certainly not near the top in many cases. So I think that those are some key things, but a much more heavier focus. And in addition to more resources and funding devoting to developing mental health infrastructure across the United States.
0: Yeah, one very common thing we've heard on this podcast is people saying that a lot of times when they have sought out mental health help, that it hasn't been culturally sensitive. And that makes it even harder to then want to pursue mental health help because what's the point if the person you're talking to is telling you to do things that culturally you just don't feel like you can?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you sit down with a therapist, it's so essential that they understand the context of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to help guide you and be able to provide the appropriate support. And if somebody doesn't understand, that's a huge gap in their ability to help. Yeah, I totally agree with you.
0: Yeah, and there's just so many layers of roadblocks. If you're somebody who is in need of mental health support, the last thing you want to do is sit through phone trees and call three or four or five different people to get it approved by your insurance and find a provider that is in network. All of these things, there's just so many hurdles that people have to overcome to even get to the first appointment. So definitely a lot of work to be done in terms of having access and having access to somebody who will know what to say that is culturally relevant.
1: Definitely. And I a hundred percent agree with you about the phone trees and how many times can you press one or two a lot of times to be like directed to some voicemail message this has got to change because if people are seeking support and a lot of times even getting to the place where they decide to seek support is difficult in itself right and then having to run around and try to figure out the systems and being able to access that support I think we really need to see significant improvement there.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure many people get to that point where they make a call, maybe they make the second call and then they just give up because it's just one more thing that they just don't feel like they have the energy to do. (laughs) I have sought mental health help before and I have gone through this as well. The only reason I went through is because I was very adamant about it from childhood. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this no matter what it takes. But I wondered throughout this process, how many people get to this point and just give up because it's so frustrating to deal with the system. (laughs)
1: Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. I agree.
0: Yeah. We like to wrap up the interview with our rapid fire section. These are one word or one phrase answers you don't have to explain, but you can if you want to. Okay, sure. All right. What's an Asian food that you should like, but don't? Oh
1: my God. I love all Asian food. (laughs) Okay. There's an Indian Punjabi vegetable. It's called karela and it's like bitter gourd and... It's not, yeah, not my favorite. Yep. I don't know if I should like it. Actually, let me change my answer because my parents are from Malaysian, Singapore. They are big fans of durian and mm-hmm. I am not a fan.
0: <laughs> and all my cousins there love that fruit. Fair enough. What's an Asian food that you will never get tired of? Dumplings. Oh, that's a good choice. When have you seen yourself represented in media and you thought, oh, that was really cool?
1: When I first saw Bendit Like Beckham, because uh, I was also an athlete in high school. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, my goodness, a South Asian Sikh girl who plays sports. So that was definitely one. The other one, just as it came to mind, we run a youth leadership program and one of the Sikh leaders under our program actually tried out for American Idol. So that was another cool thing to see in
0: terms of Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite environmental project that you worked on with your company?
1: I think stormwater management. I worked with EPA and we were looking at innovative solutions. And we had done work after Hurricane Sandy. I
0: think it was really important in the state. So it would probably be one of the ones that stuck out for me as being really important. And finally, who is someone who is currently inspiring you in the SIC community? Who is currently inspiring me in the SIC community? There are so many incredible
1: individuals.
0: Oh, you can name a few if you want. (laughs) It doesn't have to be just. Okay,
1: I think what I really love to see is really making their mark. So seeing what Rupi Kaur has done, I I love how she's the poet, her poetry, and then how she's weaved in aspects of the philosophy and the faith in really discovering, exploring who she is and womanhood. So I think that's that's really cool. I think it was really interesting to see Lily Singh when she got the talk show, and now I think she's doing a couple other interesting projects. Sumranjeet Singh, I know, just came out with a book and he was speaking at South by Southwest. I just think that there's a lot of really interesting voices in our community. Oh, another one is Sumranjeet Singh, who was the sick Captain America. Awesome to see him take on that persona and really challenge stereotypes in those ways. Yeah, I could probably list on and on, but I really like to see community like entering these spaces and authentically sharing who they are and sharing more of the
0: community and about Sikhism. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Here are our takeaways for today's episode. Number one, most Americans know very little of Sikhism and probably couldn't identify Sikhs or their articles of faith. I will link to the Turban Myths study by Stanford and Saldef in the show notes. Number two, Sikhs are often confused with Muslims, and many Sikhs became victims of Islamophobic hate crimes after 9-11 because Americans saw pictures of Osama bin Laden with an uncut beard and a turban, and they saw Sikh Americans wearing turbans with their beards, and they assumed that they were terrorists. Very incorrect assumption. Number three, as leaders, we should examine how our workplace is structured and whether we can eliminate barriers that some employees face so that everyone in the organization can thrive. For example, how can we make the workplace more mom-friendly? Make sure that people who are shy but have great ideas feel comfortable sharing. It's important to examine and redefine the norms when necessary. Number four, getting to know even just the basics of a community's culture goes a long way to prevent misunderstandings and reduce fear and distrust. dev training at the TSA, FBI, police departments, and other agencies have helped significantly reduce undue escalations when encountering Sikh Americans. This has made the interaction between law enforcement and the Sikh American community less stressful for both sides. Five, it's always a good idea to have trainings facilitated by people who are local to the community you're training or who have ground knowledge of the day to day situations faced by those people. And it's especially useful to have relevant hypothetical situations to go over. Number six, providing access to mental health resources that are culturally sensitive and timely are a key component to creating safer communities. This is why there needs to be more investment in mental health infrastructure. That includes access for people of color, immigrants, people who speak different languages, people who are neurodivergent, etc. And finally, preserving our culture does not mean we have to keep the bad parts too. Personally, I suggest we leave the sexism and keep the food. Let me know what you guys think. Once again, you can find the show notes at nuancespod.com where there will be the definitions, takeaways, articles mentioned, the video, as well as the transcript. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. I spend so much time on each episode to make sure that it is as compelling as possible and as pleasant a listening experience as possible. So it really means a lot to me when you share it with people or if you could spare 30 seconds to a minute to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening to right now if you would like to support this podcast there are many ways to do so at nuancespod.com Continuing on this week's topic of mental health, next week, Rita Petmasai from the Lao diaspora will share her love of Lao culture and how healing it can be to connect and process collectively while having great laughs and amazing food together. We also talk about her work as a mental health and wellness professional and how to cope with intergenerational trauma, cultural barriers to setting boundaries, grief, and her number one mental health hack that she recommends for mood improvement. This week's episode is sponsored by my band 23rd Hour. If you'd like to listen to more songs, you can go to 23rdhour.com, 23rdhr.com. This song is called Gravity Can Wait. Once again, I'm your host, Lazoo and I hope you'll join me next week for another nuanced Conversation.